Hello, thanks for joining us for the How To Academy podcast. I'm Vas Christodoulou. This week's guest, Adam Rutherford, will be well known to many of you as a science writer and broadcaster. He's the author of the hugely acclaimed How to Argue with a Racist and the co-star of BBC Radio 4's The Curious Cases of Rutherford and Fry. But he began his career as a geneticist at University College London, a place instrumental in the development of the notorious pseudoscience of eugenics. His new book, Control, tells the history of this pernicious doctrine. He and I spoke about how it grew from a fledgling idea to one of the most dangerous of the 20th century, inspiring both Hitler and Churchill. And we touched upon the idea's present-day resurgence, exploring whether designer babies are just around the corner. Adam, your new book, Control, explores a troubling aspect of the history of your own field of genetics, specifically the pseudoscience of eugenics. It's a 19th century word, but the idea of controlling and shaping the human population is an idea that occurred many, many times for thousands of years before the 19th century. Before we get into our stride with the history of eugenics, will you give us some context for that? Yeah, I think that's exactly right, that uh, even though eugenics is is coined as a sort of novel pseudoscientific idea in the Victorian era, it is a reflection or a formalisation of something that has been present in pretty much all cultures, as far as I can tell, pretty much through the entirety of history. In the Western canon, the earliest examples of population control are described in Plato, in, Re- in Republic's books five and six, in which he's describing his utopian city-state with his benevolent philosopher-king leader. And whilst fretting that population size is is diminishing, and and they're they're really thinking about city-states of about 5,000 people at this time, Plato suggests that they should have marriage ceremonies or marriage festivals, which, you know, sounds like it could be quite exciting. Um, But within that structure people would be paired, men and women would be paired according to some kind of inherent quality. So this is a a sort of attempt to quantify the quality of of a people. And so gold women would be paired with gold standard men, and they would have children and bronze with bronze and, and so on. And with that, we could maintain a utopian city state where people are tiered according to a hierarchy of, of worth. Now, this never happened, of course, as you know, many of the strictures and ideas within Republic don't, but it is the basis. It is one of the key uh, canonical texts of Western philosophy. But we also know in the classical period that there were plenty of examples of infanticide as a mechanism for controlling population, the most legendary of which is the Spartans. And for those of you who have seen the film 300, which is not a documentary, but does feature at the beginning the, the selective process by which babies, if they're perceived to be deformed or malnourished, are either exposed, so left out overnight where they have to fend for themselves, or dunked in, in wine to see if that has any sort of selective uh, pressure on them. And if they are not deemed fit... And then they're thrown off Mount Tegatos uh, into into the the deposit. Now, we don't have any physical record of this ever having happened. There are plenty of adult bodies in in this area 
as studied by modern archaeology, but no babies. But that could be a reflection that babies might have been taken away by wild animals. The only report of this comes from Plutarch. And the reason I spend a little bit more time thinking about the Spartans is because the, the veneration of Greek culture and Greek civilization becomes an absolute keystone for the eugenicists of the Victorian era, as they are the greatest civilization that's ever existed. And the military might, via this selection process of infanticide in Spartan law, is something that many people, many British people, particularly those in the 19th century and early 20th century who'd gone through the British public school and Oxbridge system, absolutely venerated. But also Hitler does, very specifically. He refers to the Spartans as being the first racial state with a racial policy. And it's, it's something that I've always a bit become a bit puzzled about because the Spartans lost at the Battle of Thermopylae. Right? I know it was a, a valiant stand against immigrants from the East, you know, the perpetual threat to um, or perceived threat to Western civilization, but they did actually lose at the hot gates. And the Spartans went on to their society, eventually waned and crumbled, and they, went, they ended up becoming literal circus performers. So th- this veneration of the Spartans, I think, is a bit bizarre, but it is a persistent part of the culture of thinking about reproductive control well into the Victorian era, and indeed to this day. You'll know that um, certain members of parliament refer to themselves as Spartans in, in opposing Brexit in the last few years. So there's this great sort of you know, fetishization of this, of this group of people for whom infanticide was their primary control of populations, if it ever happened in the first place. Seneca, the Stoic philosopher, talks about very specifically about infanticide as an accepted policy in Rome. And I, I focus mostly on Western culture there, but we've got examples of infanticide in pretty much every every culture, right, through, through the North American indigenous people. Uh, anthropologists write a lot about infanticide in African populations in the 19th and 20th century and, and Aboriginal Australians as well. So this idea that we can impose rule over unruly biology, I think, is eternal and ubiquitous in all cultures. But it becomes formalized in the late 19th century in the wake of Darwin's ideas about evolution. If humans are animals and therefore subject to the forces of natural and artificial selection. So you've got to remember that in The Origin of Species, the first chapter is not about natural selection, it's actually about farming, breeding. Fancy pigeons are, are one of the, uh, the main animals in that first chapter. But if, animals, if, if humans are animals and subject to the same laws, then surely, the argument goes, they are subject to change in the same way that we have been breeding animals and plants for the last 10,000 years. And thus, with Charles Darwin's half-cousin, Francis Galton, who absolutely adores the work of, of, his, of his cousin Darwin, comes up with the, the idea of, of eugenics in order to improve the stock of the British people. Who was Galton? What were his ideas? Where did he get them from? You've mentioned, yeah. obviously, that he's Darwin's cousin, but he's also a fascinating character in his own right. He absolutely is, and, and in, in some ways a sort of mirror image of Darwin in that he's, he, his, his intellectual and scientific legacy persists to this day in many, many forms. He was a great polymath, 
I'll, I'll mention a couple of those in, in just a second, but some of his biographical information is, well, he's, he's a half-cousin of Darwin, so he's got a shared grandparent, but he's also from the same clan. So the, 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 the huge umbrella of the Darwin-Wedgwood clan includes the Galton. Samuel Galton is his, is his grandfather, who was one of the Lunar Men, so a Birmingham sort of academic and part of the whole industrialization of, of, of Britain at that time. They're Quakers and they make a lot of money off being gunsmiths, which is something I've never quite managed to square, that Quakers and their pacifism can align with making guns. Anyway, Galton's father dies when he is young and Galton becomes independently wealthy. So he has, he's born in, in Birmingham, lives in Joseph Priestley's house by a weird scientific sort of rock family tree type connection. Another lunar man. Exactly. And he goes to medical school, uh, doesn't like it much, and, and then devotes the rest of his life to maths, data, a real data junkie, quantifying the un- unquantifiable is really his thing. Some of those legacies that were all related to that. So he, inv- he invents the weather map, right? He's the first person to draw out a weather map, uh, which appeared in the Times the day after it's, the, it came out. So, you know, arguably of limited use. The ideas of heredity are something which dominates all of his work. So another one of his legacies is that he was fascinated by the, the idea of fingerprints, the question at that time unresolved as to whether fingerprints were unique for individuals or were passed down from parent to child. And he was part of a group of scientists who demonstrated they were absolutely unique. And that fed into forensic fingerprinting, which, of course, is a technology we still use today. He invented a new way to cut round cakes, but that didn't really catch on in order to stop them drying out. So he invented the dog whistle as well. I've forgotten that one, which is ironic given that he was such a racist and that term has become synonymous with, uh, with <laughs> covert racism. Anyway, his main interest was how traits are passed down through families. And he was an extremely arrogant, racist, white supremacist. And those are three things which Darwin was, was not. Darwin was an abolitionist. He was humble to the point of, of it being sort of painful, if you read his private writings, and his reluctance to publish, publish his, his pretty good ideas. And so Golden was many of the sort of similar scientific bent, but very much the opposite in terms of his character. And his first, his first big break was really he went on a very extended gap year, around the world or into the, the heart of darkness in Africa and came back much more racist than he was before. Uh, he published a travel book, a guide to those areas, and that was a bestseller. So before he endeavoured to, before he got into science, he, he was already a best-selling and well-known author. But his first break into what becomes eugenics is he, uh, a couple of articles, which then he turns into a book called Hereditary Genius. And it's the notion that the concept of genius, of eminence and greatness in humans, actually in men, because he shows absolutely no interest in women at all. The concept that the greatness and eminence runs through families. And he he tries in this book to analyse using statistics rather than just sort of great men theory of history. Use statistics to actually work out why greatness and eminence runs through the families of lawyers, high court judges, prime ministers, politicians, poets, musicians, and all of the people that we venerate as the greatest men who have uh, ever lived. 
and it's it, it's a new spin on great man theory of history, which of course you know we largely have abandoned in academic history in the last I don't know fifty years or so. But it's a new spin on it because he tr- attempts to use statistics to demonstrate that there is this distribution of greatness and at the other end, the opposite of greatness, degeneracy in populations. And, and, and you know, he uses numbers to actually account for these, that there are X number of truly great geniuses per, per million in the population and X number of, of people at the other end of, of the spectrum. It's a weird book. It's it's very important and interesting. It's it, it's it's a difficult read in many places. Not not just because it contains some pretty odious ideas, but also because there's a sort of fundamental problem with it, which is that his metric for greatness and eminence is derived from reputation, derived it, itself his version of reputation from contemporary accounts of other men and obituaries. So his data is literally opinion. And in some ways, it's the ultimate version of confirmation bias, or one of the reviews at the time said, this, this, is, the, this is the ultimate version of uh, you can prove anything with statistics. He's basically saying these men are great because greatness runs in their family. And, and that's really where the whole eugenics the sort of formalization of eugenics kicks off because he then goes on over the next few decades to become more and more popular and more and more scientific or statistical in his analysis of how characteristics can be passed through families with this intention that if you can measure these things, if you can say that X number of men are great per generation, then we should be breeding according to enhancing those those statistics. So you shift the standard deviation of the quality of the British people in the right direction rather than in the wrong direction. These ideas spread like wildfire across the whole political spectrum. I mean, even thinkers who we consider to be progressive, like Du Bois and Bernard Shaw, were advocates for, for eugenics. Why was that? Yeah, that's exactly right. And it is, it's, I, I find it quite, it's sort of confusing. It's somewhat counterintuitive when you come across the fact that, it, that eugenics was so supported across political divides because it feels intuitively like people like people of great power such as well Galton who has soft power but also the attraction of his ideas to men of proper power such as Arthur Balfour uh, Churchill was one of the great um, eugenicists of of the Edwardian era and and politicians just you know broadly of of the right are supporting it but as as you say it also has great support from socialists and people on the on on the left of the political spectrum and again it's a, it's it's the same idea is that that we should be reducing the number of i'm going i'm going to use victorian and edwardian terminology here but undesirable people people with defective characteristics and some of the pseudo scientific or pseudo psychiatric terms like imbecile or morons or uh, stupidity. These these are all sort of formal um, psychiatric terms at this at this time. That the improvement of the people as a whole is going to happen as a result of reducing the people at the bottom end of society, the lowest socioeconomic status strata of society. So that's appealing to to socialists and left wing thinkers as well. From from the political right, you've also got the fact that. The, in the 1890s, 
Britain gets its ass handed to it in the Boer Wars. And, and literally the eugenicists on both ends of the political spectrum are saying we have been defeated embarrassingly so by a lesser race, right? A lesser race of people. We are not physically fit enough to deal with an inferior race of people. So this is the landscape in which eugenics takes hold across the political spectrum. You've also got, you know, the, the Industrial Revolution is ongoing. You've got massive industrialization and urbanization of cities. We've got immigration from the, uh, the colonies. And so there's a much more visible lower socioeconomic status group of people, which with it comes an increased burden of psychiatric and disease and poverty and all the things associated with poverty, including alcoholism and sex work and, and so on. And all of these things are the persistent threats that come with changing demographics. And I mentioned earlier that a lot of the protagonists of, of eugenics at this time come from uh, public school and uh, Oxbridge educations. There's, a, again, a great veneration of classical civilizations within this discourse. And that includes the concept of declinism. So they've all read Gibbon. I mean, I, I don't know how much of Gibbon they've actually read, whether they've read, you know, all 47 volumes of it. But the they've definitely notes. read... <laughs> it's it. I mean, no one has. Right? But they've definitely read the title. And so there is this, there, there is this sense that if Rome fell, which, which are, you know, itself is a pretty problematic thing to say in the 21st century, but if, if the fall of Rome was predicated on the decadent, powerful classes not having enough children... And the enemies at the gate who are either immigrant invaders or an underclass are having loads of children, then it is incumbent upon the powerful to have more children or to breed or to outbreed the working classes or the immigrants or whoever it is that is not us with the hegemonic power. So again, you see this great veneration of classical Rome coupled with the emerging formalization of the idea of declinism that, you know, everything in the past was better and Everything is, is, is getting worse now. So it's a, it's a really rich soil in which Galton comes along and sows this pseudoscientific seed, which just, just as you say, just, it just blossoms. It, it was exactly the right time and place for an idea, a pseudoscientific idea, but one that, you know, politicians always turn to scientists for validation of their ideologies. And it happened at exactly the right time. Darwin in 59 publishes The Origin of Species. Ten years later, Galton comes along and says, oh, you know, we can apply this to people and this is a political ideology. So it's not just science now, it's applied science to put a scaffold up for, um, for the political ideology of population improvement. Churchill was uh, instrumental in growing support for eugenics in, in this country, wasn't he? And he actually tried to introduce eugenics legislation. Yeah, arguably the most significant politician in the UK in terms of pushing the eugenics agenda. I, I, I know this is an inflammatory thing to say, um, possibly at the moment more than ever, but for all Churchill's very good qualities and his leading the Allies to defeat one of the greatest evils that, that the world has ever seen, undeniably great man in, in that regard. He was also profoundly racist and, and profoundly a white supremacist in, the, in those terms. He did believe that white people, white British people, 
were better than everyone else. And it was our duty to, to expand around the world and spread us over them. And with that, again, eugenics slots very nicely into, into that model. So he had become very interested in some of the work of American eugenicists in 1907, 1908, particularly, you know, read, read a, a pamphlet by Dr. Sharp from the Indiana um, Reformatory Hospital, who was a sort of, in, I don't know how to describe him best, but an enthusiastic vasectomy doctor who, who claimed that he could do, you know, several hundred a day um, with little consequence, little negative medical consequence, but, but um, sterilizing these men, which is, you know, sort of slightly eye-watering brag. Churchill had read that and thought that, that, that this was a significant a potentially significant mechanism for sterilizing men who were at the lower socioeconomic status that he thought would sh- should not procreate. He, he also spoke of using, uh, well, in his words, Röntgen rays, which we call X-rays, which had been discovered only uh, a few years earlier in 1896, I think, from memory, uh, also to sterilize men and women who were uh, in, in the socioeconomic classes deemed uh, undesirable. So there were two attempts to introduce legislation into uh, UK law uh, with enforced sterilisation uh, as as part of them. So the most significant one was the 1912 Mental um, Deficiencies Act, the early drafts of which were written by Churchill. And earlier versions of this that hadn't made it through Parliament, also written by Churchill, included enforced sterilisation for certain categories of people. A, a, a sort of slightly strange uh, bit, bit of British political history is that one of the main antagonists to Churchill's enthusiasm for eugenics was the was the writer and humorist and Christian apologist G.K. Chesterton, who had spent a long time opposing eugenics as an idea on the grounds, I think correctly, that it didn't target these specific pseudo-psychiatric categories that had been in, in, invented and imposed, but it targeted the poor. And and he wrote extensively about that. He, he referred to it as uh, he wrote a book called Eugenics and Other Evils. If that you know isn't clear enough, what he thought about it. And he he was instrumental in lobbying Parliament, and particularly another member of the Galton Wedgwood uh, clan, which is the, the MP Josiah Wedgwood, who was instrumental in having the enforced sterilisation parts of of the Mental Deficiencies Act removed. And it passed in in 1913, and that is how close the United Kingdom came to having eugenics policies on its statutes, which is odd, really. I mean, it's a very, in a slightly jokey way, I think it's it's very sort of typical of British colonial, well, now British waning colonial power, but that we invent these things like cricket and football and we export them around the world. And in the end, we turn out to be a bit rubbish at them and everyone else around the world is much better at them. Well, that definitely happened with eugenics because having, it, having invented the idea under you know, Galton's auspices, many countries, I think some, some, 31 or 32 had official um, eugenics policies on their books and none more enthusiastically than America and Germany. Hello, it's Vass here. One of our all-time favourite guests at How To Academy is back. Yuval Noah Harari's next book tells the story of how information networks have made and unmade our world. Nexus 
A Brief History of Information Networks from the Stone Age to AI is out in September and available to pre-order now. Hey there, I'm Dr. Maya Shunker, and I'm a scientist who studies human behavior. Many of us have experienced a moment in our lives that changes everything, that instantly divides our life into a before and an after. On my podcast, A Slight Change of Plans, I talk to people about navigating these moments. Their stories are full of candor and hard-won wisdom. And you'll hear from scientists who teach us how we can be more resilient in the face of change. Listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Let's talk about Nazi Germany. Who were the German eugenicists and how did their ideas come to influence Hitler? Well, if I may, I think the route to, to Nazi Germany is by talking about America first. Because, I, you know, I, I know and everyone knows that his history doesn't necessarily work in very linear narratives. But there is a pretty straight through line from the creation of the idea of eugenics in, in the UK via Galton to American eugenicists and then on to Nazi Germany. And it's not, I'm not saying that, that, that they, that these aren't cultures and countries that are thinking about population control in the same terms, but it, in, in terms of the actual, the science or pseudoscience that underlies it and the implementation of policy as a result of that science, the route is from America to Germany. Um, America's equivalent of Galton is a guy called Charles Davenport, a scientist who went from Harvard to Chicago University and then to uh, set up the Eugenics Records Office in Cold Spring Harbor, funded by uh, Mary Harriman, who was E.L. Harriman, the railway magnate's widow, and the Rockefeller Foundation and also the Carnegie Foundation. So this is very much a normalized, you know, this is part of, of contemporary culture at this time. And he, he, Davenport founds the Eugenics Records Office, whose aim is twofold. One is, is to study human heredity and promote popular ideas and also legislative ideas about, about eugenics to help states come up with their own legislation for enforced sterilization. And it's, it's pretty successful. The first enforced sterilization eugenics law is, is implemented in uh, Indiana in 1907, and 31 states follow suit over the next f- few years. We estimate that between 70 and 80,000 people were, were sterilized during the course of the, of the 20th century. But there's other factors that happen which influence what subsequently happens in, in Germany, notably that Davenport's deputy, a guy called Harry Lachlan, H.H. Lachlan, in 1920, he recognized that the states that were beginning to write their own eugenics legislation were doing it in a haphazard, ad hoc way, and that the cause of eugenics would be improved if it was standardized. So he wrote a sort of template, a boilerplate law that states could just, you know, tweak the details of to make them appropriate for for their their states. Now, the links between Lachlan, Davenport, and a few others, and and not Nazi Germany at this point, Weimar Republic Germany, become reinforced by the general spreading of the idea through pseudoscience, through the pseudoscience, through scientific um, establishments, eugenic societies, conferences, and it just begins to grow. And then in Germany, what happens in Germany is the idea is already there. Alfred Plötz is the, the Galton Davenport equivalent in Germany. A scientist who becomes enamored with, with Galton's work sets up journals, scientific journals, and 
and societies to promote eugenics. But in the 1920s, he gets he managed to, to generate great support from the medical establishment, who in the in the Second Reich and in the Weimar years have been sort of degraded as as as, as their status in society has waned. And I think many of them see eugenics, national eugenics, it's called race hygiene, Rassenhygiene in Germany. They see this as a way of bringing up their cultural status. So you've got the development of eugenics ideas in, in Germany before Hitler rises to power. Many of them, interestingly, are not anti-Semitic, right? So they actually think that the purity of the Nordic people and the same threats, replacement theory of people, the Slavs from the East or whatever... The, the same threats are, are, are present, but actually that the, the perceived intellectual success of Jewish people is something that, that, that is admirable. And therefore, Nordic people, to improve the quality of the Nordic people, should breed with Jews. But, of course, one of Hitler's defining characteristics is, is virulent anti-Semitism. And when he comes to power in 33, many of the eugenicists figure that the best way that they can get their ideas about eugenics implemented is by signing up to the anti-Semitism that is inherent to Nazism. So they go along with that. Hitler himself is, again, heavily influenced by American thinking on eugenics. He cites Madison Grant's book, who wrote a, wrote a best-selling book in 1916 called The Passing of the Great Race, which is a, a mad white supremacist screed, hugely best-selling. It's referenced in a um, sideways way in The Great Gatsby, but but it's really about great replacement theory. It's about declinism. The Nordic people are the greatest people who've ever lived and seeded I mean, in, a, in a completely bonkers way. He claims that uh, n- Northern Nordic people seeded the great cultures of Egypt, Rome, and... <laughs> and Greece, and then retreated back once, once they'd founded them, retreated back to their forests in uh, Germany and, and Scandinavia. So, you know, Hitler reads this. He thinks it's great. He describes him as his hero. He's a big fan of Henry Ford as well, a, you know, deeply, deeply anti-Semitic man who's, who, who was largely responsible for the promotion of the, the hoax, the Protocols of the Elders of Zion by his, his independent newspaper. So Hitler comes after the after the the beer putsch. He he comes out of his time in prison with not only his developing virulent anti-Semitism, but a new way of uh, imposing this on people, which is via the eugenics ideas of the American eugenicists. 1933, he takes power in February. One of the first laws that is passed under Hitler's regime is the Sterilization Act, which is directly translated from the American, Harry Lachlan's American 1920s standardized boilerplate sterilization act. So it's not that there are links, it's that Nazi Germany was entirely reliant and bolstered and derived from American eugenics policies of the previous few years. The links continued as well into the Nazi era from 33 up until 38. The eugenics establishments, research establishments in Berlin were funded by the Rockefellers. Davenport and Lochlan and others were over there talking directly to people like people whose names subsequently become irredeemably associated with Nazism and the, and the atrocities of the Holocaust. One example is Otmar uh, Fashur, 
who was one of the chief chiefs in in one of the Kaiser Wilhelm eugenics types institutes, and for sure was was Joseph Mengele's employer, and worked with Mengele throughout the war using tissues derived from murdered Jews and murdered people in in the concentration camps. Mengele, you know, survives the war and dies and he drowns in uh, South America in the 1970s. For sure, who we think, we suspect may have, uh, may have burnt records which would have condemned him. But he has a denazification hearing after the, after 45 and is charged 500 marks fine and deemed a mitläufer, so a fellow Nazi traveller, goes on to have a successful career as, as a geneticist and remains a eugenicist to the end. How does your field of genetics come out of the eugenics movement and what separates them? Well, that, that is a question that I think that we don't ask ourselves enough. And I, I'm not an apologist for, for, for genetics because I think that the trajectory of our history is celebratory, that the history is pernicious. At the core of the science of eugenics was this, is the study of human inheritance. And so much of the work, although it was politically and ideologically motivated, was fundamentally trying to understand Darwinian mechanisms in, in humans. And that, that, is, that is the foundation of human genetics. After the war, the word and the concept of eugenics becomes toxic after the revelations of the, the, the Holocaust. And many of the eugenics labs and organizations slowly evolve into human genetics labs, where instead of the, instead of the work about human inheritance being motivated for the betterment of, of society, they are switched to a purely science, they evolve into a purely scientific endeavor to understand human inheritance and evolution, and also to invent medical interventions for the alleviation of suffering in individuals. And I think that is the fundamental difference. There is no doubt that human genetics emerges out of eugenics, but human genetics is a science and eugenics was a political ideology. So, for example, you know, over the next 40 years from the war, from, from 45 onwards, techniques such as in vitro fertilization and prenatal diagnosis are invented in these labs that some of which once were the eugenics departments. And I know this history because this is where I was an undergraduate. This is the department I am still teaching in. It is evolved directly from the eugenics laboratory of UCL, University College London. So there's this, the development of human genetics in terms of understanding inheritance, coupled with the invention of techniques to improve fertility, reproductive uh, health and diagnostics and things which have had a radical impact on improving the, the, the quality of people's lives and reducing suffering for specific diseases have a lineage which comes from, from eugenics. I don't think there's any value in referring to them as eugenics. I think they would have been techniques which was, would have been of great interest to the eugenicists of the pre-war era if they had been available to them. But they are for personal and parental autonomy rather than state-imposed moulding or control of of societies. And and they are good things. This leads us to the big question that I imagine every listener is waiting for. Given everything we know about genetics now as a legitimate science, would eugenics work in theory? (laughs) Yeah, it's, it's, it's... 
It, it is a big question. And it's a question that I've spent, you know, 20 years not really thinking about. So from the age of 18, I was in the Galton Laboratory and we were taught about, about eugenics and the history of eugenics. And I've been, I've been teaching on the same course that I was an undergraduate on for much of that time. And that central idea that Galton sort of sets up in you know, 1869 or over the, over the next few years, which is that if we're evolved and we have the same basic biology as every other organism on earth, which is true, the principle, you know, core principle of Darwinian evolution, then we are subject to the same rules as agricultural breeds. And we have bred animals and plants to serve our needs over the last 10 or 12,000 years. So why should it not be true for humans? Now, it is a good question. And I approached, when I was writing the book, I was thinking, well, you know, I'm going to have to get stuck into this. And, and I don't know what the answer is going to be, but I think that the, you know, the basic setup is right. However, I'm not so sure about that now. And that's for a number of reasons. The, the first is that the agricultural analogy doesn't work. It doesn't work because I, I did something radical in writing this book when writing about eugenics and farming as an analogy, which is I spoke to farmers. And I'm not sure that anyone who's been writing about the agricultural analogy for the last 150 years might have done that. Because farming is an incredibly inefficient process. It is selective breeding. It is eugenics, in a sense. It is looking for particular characteristics in animals or plants, and by selective breeding or, or sterilization or culling, it is trying to increase or reduce those traits in subsequent generations. So why wouldn't that apply to us? Well, a number of reasons. The, the first is that a lot of people don't realize how inefficient farming is, that if you're looking to improve one particular trait, say big milky udders, then that comes with consequences which are undesirable, such as mastitis in cows, which is you know a huge problem in dairy farming, or lameness, or... Um, uh, susceptibility to all sorts of infectious diseases, which is why farmers use a lot of antibiotics or, you know, have, have to cull animals, right, whilst going through selective breeding processes. So you have to ask yourself, well, oh, wait, wait a minute, in order to successfully achieve the characteristics that we want in animals, in, in farm animals, well, we do have to cull people, right? So at what level... What, what level of culling of human populations is, is acceptable for this to work? Which is obviously, yeah, feels like it should be the beginning and the end of that conversation. There's another factor which I think is often overlooked, which is that farm animals are bred for very, very specific contexts, and that is farms. And a dairy cow, a Frisian from whom we get milk, wouldn't last 24 hours in the wild because they're not bred for general improvement. They're bred for specific improvement. Now, while it, I, I don't know, maybe you could breed a human if you, if you, if, if this were permissible, which of course it's not. And it's ridiculous, uh, a ridiculous, unethical, even thought experiment. If you wanted to breed humans to have more muscly legs, so they were meatier or more milky breasts, then yes, I expect that is, that is possible. But in doing so, or one, you think you know what you're selecting for, but you don't know what you're also selecting for or against. So maybe in 20 generations, we could have massive legged people, but we also might have people who have, you know, other colossal defects or other enhanced characteristics that are unpredicted. 
And the reason that I can say that with confidence is because fundamentally we don't know how human genetics works. We have infinitely more knowledge about human genetics than, than the eugenicists of the 1920s and, and 30s. Of that, I have no doubt. I'm not disparaging my field and the excellent work of, of my colleagues over the last 20, 30, 40 years. But we don't know, we, we, we don't know what, how most genes work. We've identified almost all of the 20-odd thousand genes in the human genome, but we don't know what most of them do. We know that half of them are involved in our brains, but they're not like specific to specific tissues. Part of this idea is derived from well, a lot of the work of people like Charles Davenport in the 1900s, who figured that there was one gene for every characteristic, like Mendel and his peas, which is where they got that idea from, which is not incorrect. Mendel's, Mendel's work is good work, but humans are very complicated. And so eye colour. I, I guess mo most of your listeners will have learned about blue eyes and brown eyes and how brown eyes are dominant over blue eyes. And you have to have two blue eye genes to have blue eyes and only one brown eye gene to have brown eyes. And that's the genetics of, of eye color. Well, you know, it's just not very true that it, it's sort of broadly true, but it's perfectly possible for parents with any eye color to have any eye color in their children. Blue and brown eyes aren't binary options. Eyes are different colours on a spectrum. Eyes are different colours within the same eye. Sometimes they're different colours on the same person in different eyes. So the notion that we've got this very mechanistic binary option that's determined by the two, one, one of two types of gene that you've got is a nonsense. It's, it's just, you know, we teach that and it's culturally reinforced because it's the easiest way to step into the world of, of genetics. But... I think that most geneticists know this, and I wouldn't bet the farm on predicting the eye colour of my own children who don't fit into that, that model. When you do your 23andMe, if you've done that, it will tell you what genes you have associated with eye colour. And I've done mine, and I've got brown eyes, if you can see. And my results come back and say, you have a, with this particular version of this gene, which is the, the one to do with brown eyes and blue eyes, there is a 69% chance that I have brown eyes, right? I'm, you know, really glad I spent 100 quid on finding that out. I knew I had brown eyes before I did that test. But even so, what that shows is how insecure and non-deterministic genetics actually, human genetics actually is. That means that two-thirds of people who have exactly the genotype associated with brown eyes have brown eyes and one third of them don't. So if you, you know, if you, if you dug me up in a thousand years time and got my genome out of my, my old bones and ran the test for what eye color genes I had, you'd have a 60% chance of getting it right. And that's eye color, which is of trivial interest. So if you're talking about something like, I don't know, intelligence, IQ, which does have a huge genetic component, and the best studies have identified hundreds, if not thousands of genes, which positively correlate with increased cognitive abilities by multiple metrics, not just IQ, but by how long you stay in school, um, educational attainment, things like that. These, the patterns of inheritance here are nothing like peas, wrinkliness in peas, or, or even the eye colour genes, which I've already said doesn't really work. So when people start banging on about using eugenic selection via the new technologies of embryo selection in order to improve 
a kid's IQ, they're in fantasy land. I mean, you're talking about a science that I don't understand, having spent 25 years studying this, that the people who actually do the work, I'm, you know, I don't, I haven't been in the lab for years. I haven't held a pipette in anger for, for many years now. The people doing the work don't know how it works. And, and yet political commentators and indeed politicians are out there seriously saying we can do this now and we should seriously think about doing it. JBS Haldane is one of the guys who comes out in a more positive light from this book. He's an uh, early 20th century titan of biology. And he was one of the few people who opposed the eugenics movement from within the genetics community. And he said, I do, and this is in response to the American policies of eugenics and the, and the, and the, what was, we were then discovering were the Nazi policies of eugenics. He said in a 1938 book, I do not believe that we have a, a deep enough current understanding of human heredity to warrant such interventions. And he said that in 1938. And I think that is absolutely true today, that even in the era of the human genome and millions of genomes being accessible to everyone on earth and the ability to extract your your genetic information by spitting in a tube and sending it off to a company for a hundred bucks or whatever. I do not believe that we have enough of an understanding of human genetics to warrant intervention that is being suggested by uh, by some commentators right now. Adam, it's extremely comforting to hear from a geneticist that we aren't going to be living in the brave new world anytime soon. Thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. Thanks, Faz. It was a pleasure talking to you. This week's podcast starred Adam Rutherford, whose new book, Control, is out now from all good bookshops. It was produced and presented by me, Vas Christodoulou, and the editor was John Doughty. If you love science, we have you covered with past episodes starring string theorist Michio Kaku, COVID vaccinologist Sarah Gilbert, anthropologist Alice Roberts, and lots more, all in our archive. And, of course, our live and live stream events programme is full of big thinking in science, philosophy and medicine, with upcoming guests including Richard Dawkins, Michael Dine and lots more. Find the full lineup at howtoacademy.com. Until next time, thanks for listening. <laughs>